Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of It's Crime Time. I recently found out some bad news about my health. I posted this on Instagram. Don't worry, I'm fine. Um, There's people that are far worse off than me, obviously. You know, at least I'm still able to work and get up and function for the most part. But I'm trying my best to get these episodes out to you guys, but I've been focusing on things that pertain to my health and my job because I do work full-time. I'm a full-time student, but it's summer vacation, and I thought I was going to be able to, you know, crank out more episodes and everything, but then I had this this little roadblock is kind of in the way. So I've been using what little energy I have to focus on my job and other things that need done. So I'm apologizing again on every episode for that. You will hear some noise in this podcast. I apologize for that. My dogs are in the background. They're being kind of crazy. And another thing, lastly, that I need to apologize for is the clicking. You might hear my mouse and stuff because I actually have been researching this case a lot and I have several things open. Um, I do have, I do write, I guess you could call it a script. I, I get information and I write my own scripts, but I have a couple of things I need to open about this case. So you may hear that in the background, which I know that sucks. That's kind of annoying for some people. But anyway, I have been researching this case for two, three weeks now, and it's pretty different from other stuff I put on here. It's a pretty interesting case nonetheless. It does have to do with crime, obviously. I have not heard another podcast do this episode or do this case on an episode. Now, I'm not saying they're not out there. I just haven't heard one. But I did see a couple documentaries on this a few years back, and it just popped into my head one day, and I was thinking about it, and I was like, hmm, I'm going to research this for my pod because I haven't heard one about it. So on this episode, I'm going to be talking about the new Sweden, Maine Lutheran Church arsenic poisoning. All right, everyone, it's crime time. there exists a small town which had a population of only 651 people during the times of this case. And now in 2020, it only has around 575 people. This town is known as New Sweden, and it's a pretty tiny potato farming town where Swedish immigrants migrated to from Canada 133 years before this incident. So they say about 50 Swedes were sent here to settle in this town from Canada and they created farms to grow their potatoes. So New Sweden is basically nothing but farmland and it meets with northern woods and it's aligned with signs that say moose crossing. Upon researching, I found that Even car rentals to the south of New Sweden warn of big animal collisions if travelers are going near or through New Sweden. Maine's a place I always wanted to visit. It's a dream place of mine. 
I love Harbor Towns. I, I would love to see all the Harbor Towns there and Montauk, New York. And I've actually been told by people that I asked about Maine, what's there, you know, is it exciting? And everyone just tells me pine trees and moose. So the moose crossing signs make sense. It often snows 110 inches in New Sweden during the winter. It's a pretty quiet town. It only has one store that supplies the gas, hunting and fishing equipment, and snacks and souvenirs. Pretty much a small convenience store, like the one near my town. I actually don't live in a town. I live in a place that's considered a village. We don't even have a gas station. Everyone in New Sweden is basically related to each other in some way or their friends. So as I stated, the Swedes attempted to establish this town when they migrated there. They set up their farms, their stores and railroads, and the railroads and stores all closed. It was just too hard to earn a living in this area. Totally sounds, again, like where I live. There's one post office down the road and a small store in my village, and that's about it. Not exactly sure if the store is even open anymore. I remember it used to sell candy and cigarettes and years ago probably about 10 11 years ago or more I remember them being down to only selling one brand of cigarettes I never see anyone entering it so but anyway the story isn't about my town but it's just crazy to me because I can almost picture this little town in my head thinking about mine so this case involves a church in the town and this church is known as the Gustav Adolf Lutheran Church it was established in 1880. The congregation was established in 1871 by the settlers. The present church building stands on Capitol Hill Road and it features stained glass in the balcony that is in memory of the early settlers. On Sunday, April 27, 2003, Sunday service was held at the church just like usual. And after the service, some of the members of the congregation suggested having a council meeting about the furnace that was to be bought for the church. And as usual, coffee was brewed for members of the church and punch for those that didn't drink coffee, such as the children. One of the members, Janet Erickson, invited everyone to purchase baked goods from the bake sale that was held the day before. The money collected from the bake sale was to go to improvements for the church. So I guess this was a normal thing at the church, like a lot of other churches where the congregation has a meeting afterwards, you know, to discuss improvements of the church. And this was just a typical thing. Um, also to note, there wasn't a pastor at this church. They actually invited traveling ministers or people from the congregation itself would just, you know, get up there and preach the sermon for the day. 15 people filled their plastic cups with the coffee and began to chat as usual before the meeting went underway. Talking about the weather, asking each other how they're doing, just normal conversation. Janet Erickson and her sister Shirley had no intention of having coffee since they were gonna get their coffee at a Sunday lunch. Now I mention all these names in here because they're going to be brought up again later and because Janet originally had decided not to have some coffee. Members of the Bondison family, who often didn't drink coffee, even had some cups. Bob Bengston and his mother, Peggy Bengston, also drank the coffee, as well as a lady named June Greenier, who was the first to mention the taste of the coffee. 
June had asked Shirley to have a sip of her coffee to see if it tasted off to her. So like I said, um, Shirley and her sister, Janet, didn't plan to have any coffee, but Shirley took a sip of June's coffee. Shirley had one sip and she couldn't stand to drink anymore. The coffee was very bitter and not a normal bitter like regular dark coffee, she thought. A man named Eric Morrison told the ladies that the coffee wasn't too bad and that it was different everywhere you ordered it, which is true. Since most people like their coffee a particular way, some people are just very particular about the way they drink coffee, as I am. Some people will just order coffee and that's whatever, but you know, a lot of people like like the coffee. So he thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe it's just different to you guys. But then he kind of felt that the aftertaste of the coffee was slightly wrong. It burned and it tingled his mouth and throat and not from the heat of the coffee, but the actual liquid touching the skin of his mouth. He thought maybe some dish soap had been left in the two urns used to make coffee. Maybe something stronger than dish soap, like lime away. People in the congregation though, began to throw up. First, Lois Anderson, who threw up several times thinking it must've been something she ate, maybe before the meeting at the church or maybe during the meeting, but then other people actually followed. Eric Margeson felt so sick that he drove to his father's home where he could not stop vomiting. Now, an important name in this case, Walter Reed Morrill. He was known as Lucky Reed, who lived next door to the church and was one of the most important members of the congregation whom they considered to be the church's ray of sunshine. He said the coffee tasted funny as he headed back up his driveway. Everyone loved Walter. He was very kind. He was a giving person. He even insisted on making a French toast breakfast for everyone in the congregation the Sunday after receiving heart surgery during the winter before. So this was in the spring and he had just gotten heart surgery and he was, you know, preparing a breakfast for everyone. So I mean, he sounds like a very, very nice gentleman. By that evening, everyone from the congregation who had consumed the coffee and the food, everyone that was at the meeting had been taken to the hospital 10 miles south of New Sweden in a place called Caribou. The hospital in Caribou is known as Cary Medical Center. By early morning on Sunday, 78-year-old Walter Reed Morrill had passed away. The hospital staff had known it was not food poisoning due to such a quick onset of vomiting and a plunge in their blood pressure but they could still not figure out what was causing so many people from this meeting to become ill. So that Monday night on April 28th, lab work came back and the cause of the sickness of the congregation members and the death of Reed was arsenic poisoning. Before I continue, I would like to give just a little history on arsenic in this location. Swedish farmers often used arsenic to kill the top leafy portions of the potato plants that grew above the ground. They believe this helped the potato skin thicken so they did not bruise easily during harvest. They say the Swedes often set their tables outside with Swedish cookies and coffee for coffee parties that everyone would gather around. I found a saying in my research, they always said coffee made the community strong and arsenic made the crops hearty. This was what they had always believed. Arsenic was actually banned in this location for the use on crops and it was replaced by sulfuric acid. People of this town often say that arsenic can still be found on the back of shelves in old barns where it had been left. So basically when it was banned, it was, you know, just thrown to the back of the barn and it was still there. People didn't use it. They didn't mess with it, but it was just a part of history. It was still there. 
Older's death had now been ruled a homicide, and many speculated that at first it could have been accidental, as the man that made the coffee was in the hospital as well. Many people thought maybe it was the well water at the church. The water used to make the punch and other items hadn't made anyone else sick, though. Police asked all 50 members of the church to submit fingerprints and blood for DNA samples. The police began to focus on one of the two urns the coffee had been drank out of, as people who drank out of the other had not gotten sick. They believed the arsenic was not naturally occurring. The police had even rolled out the sugar. They had not found any of the herbicides or pesticides that had been previously used either. 14 people had reported to the hospital, and the other two who drank the coffee were called into the hospital for testing as well. Seven people were released and then recalled to the hospital to begin treatment to purge the arsenic from their bodies. Eight people were treated at Cary Medical Center and seven were treated at a hospital known as Eastern Maine Medical Center, four hours south of New Sweden. Six of the seven in this hospital were in serious or critical condition. Shirley Erickson, who had only had one sip, ended up in the hospital for eight days. So that tells you just how high the levels of arsenic were. Five days after the arsenic poisoning on May 2nd, 2003, Daniel Bondison, age 53, was found shot in the chest in his barn. It was ruled to be a suicide and a note was left behind by him in which he admitted to poisoning the parishioners. The note was handwritten and smeared with blood. Part of the note stated, quote, I acted alone, I acted alone. One dumb, poor judgment ruins life, but I did wrong, end quote. Another section read, quote, I thought it was something. I had no intent to hurt this way. Just upset stomach like the churchgoers did me, end quote. Now, I don't think he was actually speaking literally as in they upset his stomach or hurt him, but they emotionally hurt him during a possible dispute among the parishioners and himself. So it wasn't really out there. I mean, I couldn't find anything about exactly what the dispute was or who he had this problem with, but it was determined that he did not know that the chemical he put in the coffee was arsenic, but he figured it was something that would just make the parishioners sick. He didn't intend on killing anyone. Despite stating he acted alone, police believed, as well as the other members of the town and the church, that he had accomplices, at least one for sure. Three years after the incident, it was ruled that Daniel Bondison had acted alone. A statement from the Associated Press in an article titled, Poisoner's Suicide Note Says He Acted Alone, written in 2006, reads, Quote, through the grand jury process, we have now had the opportunity to examine evidence that was previously unavailable to us, but which we cannot disclose because of grand jury secrecy requirements. Based upon that previously unavailable information and the information gathered through the investigation over the last three years, we have concluded that there is insufficient evidence at this time to believe that anyone other than Daniel Bondison was involved in the arsenic poisoning at the Gustav Adolf Lutheran Church in New Sweden, Maine on April 27, 2003. We are now satisfied that on the morning of Sunday, April 27, 2003, Daniel Bondison drove alone to the Gustav Adolf Lutheran Church in New Sweden and there entered the kitchen while the members of the congregation were attending the worship service. While inside the kitchen, Daniel Bondison poured an undetermined amount of liquid arsenic into the percolator and the brewed coffee. He then left the building. We are now satisfied that the source of the arsenic was a chemical container located at the Bondison farm. That container has been recovered. We have met with members of the church and family members of the victims of the poisoning to give them an update on the investigation and our conclusions. No further investigative efforts are planned in connection with this case, end quote. 
around the time of his poisoning, Norma Bondison, who I found to be, I believe, Daniel's sister, she also lived on the farm with him, had been experiencing similar symptoms as the parishioners and was out of town at the time of the poisoning, but was taken into custody for testing and monitored at a medical facility for 24 hours. They wanted to test her blood and her urine, but she has declined any interviews, so I didn't find any information as to if he, in fact, did poison his sister as well. The case was then closed, and it was determined that Daniel was the only culprit, and he did act alone, even though many still believe this is not the case and would like it to be reopened for investigation. Those that survived the poisoning still face health struggles. In an article in 2008 in the Los Angeles Times, several descriptions have been listed about the troubles the survivors face. Dale Anderson suffers with leg and foot pain that makes it difficult to walk more than short distances. He also suffers from neuropathy in his hands and they often feel numb. He stated, quote, it's hard to put it behind you when someone tried to kill you, end quote. Lester Beaupre, aged 58, spent 34 days in the hospital, most of which he was in a coma, and this was the longest any of the victims had spent in the hospital. He experienced facial numbness, particularly in his lips, numbness in his legs, and even memory loss, his body has continued to improve. He stated, quote, it's almost as if ever since day one, people didn't want to talk about it. That's one of the problems with a lot of people at the church. People didn't want to talk about it, end quote. Reverend James Morgan, who was close with Daniel Bonneson said, the idea was to make the best of it, to pick yourself up and to step past it as best as you can, said Morgan. He was close to Danny Bonneson and he still actually remains close to the Bonneson family. So basically, before I read the rest of this quote here, um, some people believe that it needs to be reopened, it needs to be investigated, and other people, like Reverend James Morgan, who was friends of the Bonneson family, basically believes to just let it go, it's rough, but move on with your lives. Because, you know, I mean, I guess, he's basically saying be grateful you're alive, and you'll probably never find out. So the last part of the quote reads, quote, it's going to be an unsolved riddle. We'll let it go, end quote. All right, everyone, that's it for this episode of It's Crime Time. If you enjoyed, please subscribe on the platform you get your pods, and don't forget to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. Check out case information and photos on Instagram at It's Crime Time Pod. 